this year, what we are thinking about together is this idea of life with Jesus. And every time when we gather for worship, we are being reminded, and God is truly offering to you, that we would be defined by his word and his word alone. Hear this from Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. If you would, let's respond to this, to sing to our great God, lifting high the name of Jesus. I'd love to look with you this morning in the Gospel of John. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn there. The words are also in the bulletin and should be on the screen behind me. We're going to look at this last section of the first chapter together, verses 35 through 51. Before I read this, I want to remind you, there are a lot of things that Jesus said and there are a lot of things that Jesus did that aren't recorded for us in the gospel accounts. But the Apostle John wrote these words so that we might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing we might have life in his name. That's what he says in chapter 20, verse 31. So every time you read any portion of John's gospel, we are to be thinking about that reality. It's written so that you might believe he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that you might have life. So let's read this book of life together. John 1, 35 to 51, please follow along as I read this word of life for you and for me. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Isn't that a funny question? A lot of people think, can anything good come out of Eastern North Carolina? Well, barbecue to start off with, and all of you. But isn't that fascinating? Same thing. You hear about this little podunk area and think, well, man, what in the world could come from there? 
right? Same mentality. This book resonates with us very, very deeply. Well, let's continue. All right, where was I? Philip said to him, sorry, the middle of verse 46. Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I say to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the greatest gift that you could give us in Jesus. Heaven has nothing more to give. So we ask that you would cause us to see Jesus as our joy, our life. In his name we pray, with expectation that you, Holy Spirit, will act, because you will. This word will not return void. We give you praise and thanks. Amen. What we're going to do this morning is jump straight into the story. So I hope that this, by me retelling the story, that you will actually get into it and you will be able to understand more of what's going on. Along the way, I'm going to make a, little, a few little stop-offs and, and dig a little bit deeper, and then we're going to get to takeaway. So if you would, get into this story as much as you possibly can, get into this story. It starts off by saying John the Baptist was standing with two guys. You find that in verse 35. Did you catch that? And as he's talking with them, hanging out with them, Jesus begins to approach. And as Jesus begins to approach John the Baptist and these guys that he's talking with, John the Baptist identifies Jesus. You notice what he says? The Lamb of God. You remember he just said that in verse 29. He's saying it again. John is really committed to this. And like last week, I want you all to think about this. Will you let this description of Jesus, will you let this description of Jesus control what you think of him and what you think of yourself? Will you? Whatever description is in your mind, whatever description you have of who Jesus is, let this one be there too. The Lamb of God. Like the lamb, the one that takes away all of your burden and sins and shame. The one that represents you before a holy God who gave himself for you so that you would have the love of God and the grace of God and life and life everlasting. Please, John wants us, God wants us to have this image of Jesus in our minds that it might dominate what we think about him and change what we think about ourselves. Well, as soon as John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, guess what happens? The two guys that he's talking with, they take off. Can you imagine being in a conversation with two people and you see someone coming that you know and say, hey, this is Jesus. And the guys that you're talking with decide they're gonna go with him instead of you. You ever had that happen? That's exactly what happened with John. 
Here he is, probably trying to invite Jesus into this conversation that these three are having. And as soon as these two realize that this is Jesus, they start following him. So John's just left there. And apparently they're following somewhat of a distance behind Jesus, probably creeping on him a little bit. And Jesus is walking down the way, and he realizes that someone's following him. You ever been in those moments where you realize somebody was following you? It's probably happened to you this past week. Whether you're in Target or Walmart or wherever it is, you know if somebody is following you. Well, Jesus recognizes that these two guys are following him, and he turns around and he says to them, what are you seeking? (laughs) Wow, that's quite an introduction, isn't it? Now, we need to think about this too. Just briefly, what are you seeking? What are you seeking this morning? What are you seeking this morning in worship? Having been away from you for two weeks and visiting other churches, this is what I want you to be seeking. When you come to worship, this is your pastor speaking to you, saying, this is what I want you to be seeking. This is what I want you to seek in worship. I want you to come here because you want to commune with the God of grace. What are you seeking when you come through these doors? Hopefully, the God of all grace. I want you to be seeking, and I want to seek this with you, that when we come to worship every week, we want to confess our sins and Cling to God's declaration of forgiveness. That's what I want you to seek. I want you to come here knowing that you need to confess and receive and cling to his forgiveness. I want you to want to feed on Jesus and to hear more and more of him, whether that is through his word or this morning in particular, at the table. That's what I want you to be seeking. I would love for you to be seeking to know more and more in your experience and in your knowledge, as you grow in knowledge and grow in your experience, I want you to know the, that the gospel is God's power for your salvation. More and more. When you come here, here's something else I want you to be seeking, and I want to seek this with you. I want you to want God's blessing. You know that thing we do at the end of the service every week? I want you to come here seeking God's blessing, that you know that he is promising to bless you this coming week so that you can actually fulfill your callings as a parent, as a single person, as married, as not, in your work, in your neighborhoods, whatever you're doing this week, that you might want his blessing to empower you and strengthen you to live out your calling this week. That's what I want you to be seeking every time you come here, at least these things. I don't want you to be seeking to come here because you want like a pat on the back. I don't want you to come to church because you're actually seeking escape from your life, from your motives, from whatever's going on. I don't want you to come to worship because you're really interested in hearing a self-help message disguised as something Christian, that you want the real thing, and you're seeking the real thing every week. Well, notice that when Jesus turns to these two guys and says, hey, what are you seeking? They don't answer, right? That's part of the reason why I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to answer this for us this week. 
So Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they don't answer, but they do ask him something else. They said, Jesus, where do you live? Isn't that an interesting response? He gives one of the, most, one of the deepest questions you can ask someone. And then they say, well, where do you live? And Jesus says, come with me. Come and you will see. So they come with Jesus and they spend the whole day with Jesus. Wouldn't that have been amazing? And oh, by the way, when they arrived at Jesus' house, when they arrived at the place at least where he was staying, one of those guys that was following Jesus was named Andrew. And Andrew thought to himself, huh, I get to go to the place where Jesus is staying. I need to go get my brother. And so Andrew runs back into town. And he finds Simon. And he says, Simon, we found the Messiah. Simon, come here. We, we're going to this place. If we hurry, we can catch up. So he brings his brother. And they arrive at the place where Jesus is staying. And that is where Simon first met Jesus. We've looked at this passage before. That's why I'm going to skip over this largely. You know what happens here. Look in verse 42. Jesus gives Simon a new name. He gives him a nickname. He says, you are going to be called Cephas. You're going to be called Peter. You know why Jesus does this? Because he's telling Peter the first time that he meets him. He's telling him in advance, this is what I will make of you. You don't come to me all solid. You come to me weak. I'm the one that makes you solid. I'm the one that makes you into what you ought to be. So he gives Jesus, excuse me, Jesus gives Peter this name. Well, verse 43 goes on to the next day. Jesus goes to Galilee, and it's there that he finds Philip, and he says, Philip, follow me. It's just that simple. It's that explicit. Follow me. And Philip begins to follow Jesus. But he brings someone with him too. The person that he brings with him is Nathaniel. He even goes to Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. We found what the law and the prophets were talking about. We found him. Now, just to pause here again, this is another spot we're going to pause just for a second. Think about this statement in verse 45. When they say we found the Messiah, the one that was talked about in the law and the prophets, just think just for a moment with me. Think about what this is telling you and what this is telling me about how people in the first century studied the Bible, how they read it, and how they interpreted it. You've heard an awful lot about how people understood the Bible in the first century that was wrong and bad, right? Whether it's interpreting it too literally, not understanding Jesus, on and on. But look at what this is telling you. When Philip says this, and he says this to Nathaniel, this is giving us profound insight into how they read the Old Testament, into how they interpreted the Old Testament. They read Moses and the law and the prophets as talking about Jesus. Let that sink in. Because it is possible that you have grown up in a situation in which the Old Testament was just a list of rules was just story after story to communicate moralisms of how we're supposed to live. Nathaniel and Philip, when they read the law of God, the first five books of the Bible, what Moses wrote, they were looking for the Savior. When they read the prophets, 
They were thinking about the coming Messiah. So whatever they knew of the Old Testament, and I'm sure they didn't have everything memorized, whatever they knew of the Old Testament, they were looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, knowing that it was all about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. As one of our great storybooks that we love says, every story whispers his name. Every story in the Bible whispers the name of Jesus. It's telling us about Christ. Well, Nathaniel asks his brother, like we already said, well, can anything good really come out of Nazareth? He says, come and see. Then Jesus engages Nathaniel, the last few verses of this section. Jesus engages Nathaniel, and his life was changed forever. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. That's the story. I hope in some way and in some capacity, you've been able to get into that story. And I hope that it's triggered your imagination in some way. But now let's go to takeaways. As we look at this passage and think about this story, what are the takeaways here? And let's start here. The point of this passage is to tell us that life with Jesus means we give ourselves to him. That's what it means. Life with Jesus means we give ourselves to Jesus. And there are a couple ways, a couple things that have to happen in order for us to give ourselves to Jesus. Those are the two takeaways. What I'm going to tell you are the two things that have to be going on prior to our being able to give ourselves to Jesus. Here's the first one. Just think about this. First takeaway of of these verses. People bring people to Jesus. You want to know how to live? You want to know what it looks like to live out your faith at work or at home or wherever you are? This is telling you in all these verses, people bring people to Jesus. John the Baptist was doing that. His whole life was about pointing people to Christ. Same with us. Andrew brings Simon. Philip brings Nathaniel. Everything about this is telling us people bring people to Jesus. And that does not mean that God wants every single one of us to be extroverted and out there. It's not what it's talking about. But he wants us to care about other people. He wants us to care about the people that are in our lives. And when people bring people to Jesus, let me tell you something else that it doesn't mean. It's not Jesus juking people. Have you ever had that happen to you, the Jesus juke? Here's a little bit of a definition. A Jesus juke is when you are having a conversation with someone and the person you're talking with completely reverses the direction of the discussion to talk about something spiritual. You ever had those times? Here's here's a made-up scenario, and then I'll tell you a personal one. If you were to get involved in having a conversation with someone and you were telling them your story and you were able to say, look, my life has been transformed. Like, I never exercised growing up and over the last two years I've started exercising and I've, I've become far more healthy and here's a picture of me becoming more healthy and you show that to the person you're talking with and a Jesus juke would be if they said, oh man, if you just put as much strength and effort into your faith as you did in your body, then everything will be better. That's the Jesus juke. See, a lot of times the Jesus juke is not, 
it's not appropriate, it's weird, and it comes across as how you can try to shame other people or show other people that you have a greater Jesusness than they do. And when, and when Jesus is teaching us here that people bring people to Jesus, he's not talking about we need to become masters at Jesus juking people. The, mo- the worst time I ever got Jesus juked, and you can ask Jenny about this, I was so hot. I was so angry. I shouldn't, well, I have lots of sin to confess. Not long after I moved here, I got a phone call from someone. I don't even know how they got my name. I don't know how they got my number. And this person called me. And they were in distress. I think I'd been here six or eight months. It hadn't been long. And they called me and said, Dave, uh, I'm in ministry. I know you don't know me, but I'm in a really bad spot, and I need some help. I want some advice. I want to meet with you, and I want to talk. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't, I don't even know you. But I said, sure, let's meet. So we met in the next couple of days, and when we uh, started having a conversation. We exchanged pleasantries, and there was about three minutes of um, you know him asking me a couple questions about how I got here to Eastern North Carolina and all that. And then, and then, he launched into a presentation of what he is doing, and tried to strong arm me to give him money. And it didn't just end with, "So that's what I'm doing," and uh, I was wondering if you could support me. It ended with, well, why don't you want to support me? Well, do you, you're a pastor of this church. Can you give me names of people in your church that I could contact? How about family members? And just kept going and going and going. And I finally said to him, I'm not giving you another name. This is not why we met. This is not why you wanted to meet. I got Jesus juked thought we were getting together to help, and all of a sudden, the old bait and switch. And this is not what God wants us to do. It's not how he wants us to live. And as Christians, I'll speak to you as fellow believers in Jesus, Jesus juking people has really hurt our credibility in our culture. And if you haven't been Jesus juked, praise God. But if you are engaging people who have been Jesus juke before, if you're engaging with people who are not believers, beware. This is one of the things that people will be expecting when they talk to Christians. It's for Christians not to be upfront and honest, but don't look for weird ways to interject something that the conversation wasn't even about at all, as if to throw a shame grenade on others. Jesus is saying people bring people to me. And that means we need to care about people. It means we need to move toward people in sincerity. It means that we need to move toward people in building genuine relationships. And that takes time, a lot of time. And the hope is that as we begin to engage others, whoever God brings into our lives, The hope is that we might get close enough to people to tell them why we need Jesus. Not to sit and tell them how wrong they are, but to share with them what God has done 
for us to give a testimony of what God is still doing in us. And when you have that kind of relational capital, it works. When you listen, when I listen, it matters. Playing the long haul game, thinking about long term, it really, really matters. People bring people to Jesus. Here's the second one. Jesus really, really knows you. As you sit here this morning and contemplate these verses and you think about giving yourself to Jesus, know that that usually happens because other people have brought you and God is using you to bring you to him. Excuse me, God is using you to bring others to him. But the second thing is that as we all stand and sit here this morning, Jesus really, really knows you. And that means two things. One is only he can make you into what you ought to be. Only he can make you into what you ought to be. What's the example of that in these verses? Peter. Only Jesus could turn Peter into what he ought to be. Only the grace of God, only the love of God can transform us into what we are supposed to be. And as Jesus was changing Peter through walking with him and living with him and in relationship with him, that meant that he saw Peter through all of his ups and downs. If you know anything about the life of Peter, he had some amazing ups and some really low lows. And all of it, Jesus was using to change him into what he ought to be. Jesus was with him in faithful times. Jesus was with Peter through his denials. Jesus was praying for him. Jesus was with Jesus through the times in which the gospel was fresh in Peter's life and he was excited and could declare exactly who Jesus is. And he was with Peter in times when Peter cared more about what others thought of him than what God thought of him. Make sense? We have the exact same highs and lows, the exact same experience. And Jesus did that through bringing Peter into community and the church. The church is how Peter developed relationships and grew because that's exactly what Jesus continues to use. It's relationships. It's people. Even, even at Peter's lowest moment, thinking that he would never do what Jesus said he was going to do. Even in that, when we are shocked by what we're actually capable of in our lives, Jesus continues to pray. And it even led to Peter being brought to the end of his life where he would die a death, the scripture says, in which he would bring glory to God. Only Jesus can make us into what we ought to be. And our expectation should be that our life mirrors and follows the pattern of Jesus' life. That's what our expectation should be. Here's the second thing. Only Jesus can satisfy our deepest needs. Only he can satisfy the deepest needs of our heart. That's it. If you look anywhere else to find whatever's going on in your heart, you look for anyone else, anything else to satisfy the deepest longing that you have, 
It won't work. It's only Jesus. Only he can satisfy the deepest needs of our heart. Nathaniel. Nathaniel. That's what Nathaniel is picturing for us. Look back through these verses. Think about when Jesus engages Nathaniel. Remember what he says to him? He saw Nathaniel coming toward him and he said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Did you catch that? He sees him coming. He hasn't met him yet. And Jesus yells out, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's amazing. That's recorded for us in verse 47. What Jesus is getting at is that he knew Nathanael was unpretentious and he knew that Nathanael was transparent. He knew he was a transparent person. The place that we live here in Eastern North Carolina, the place that we live, the people are unpretentious for sure, but they're not transparent. There is a facade everywhere. There are expectations everywhere that people impose on you. Not pretentious, but also not very transparent. Everything is about saving face and keeping up. Jesus sees Nathaniel and says, you're someone who's without deceit. You're someone who's honest and transparent. You understand in some way who you really are. Isn't it amazing that Jesus sees good things in his people? Doesn't that encourage you? Jesus sees good things in your life, and he identifies that. He names it. He sees this man, and he loves him, and he notices good things about him. Now, that sparks Nathaniel to say right back to Jesus, well, how do you know me? How in the world do you know me? Jesus said to him, look in verse 48 and following, oh, I, I saw you under the fig tree. Before Philip got you and, and, and brought you here, I, I saw you. Even before Philip came to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, please hang in there with me. This is significant. I know I'm kicking out a lot of data today. Stay with me. Jesus was identifying a time when Nathaniel was alone. He was identifying a time in which Nathaniel was in a very private, personal moment. A moment in which Nathaniel was talking to God. He was pouring out his heart to God. And Jesus didn't just see Nathaniel under the fig tree. He didn't just see Nathaniel in his solitude. He knew what was going on in Nathaniel's mind. You say, well, how in the world do we know that? Because of what he says. What was going on in Nathaniel's mind is he was thinking about a story way back in the Old Testament of Jacob. You can read about it in verse 20, excuse me, excuse me, Genesis 27 and 28. Nathaniel was thinking about that story. Genesis 28 tells us of a time in which Nathaniel was on the run. Excuse me, <laughs> messed that up. Genesis 28 is not about Nathaniel so much as it is about Jacob. There we go. Jacob was on the run. 
Jacob had deceived his brother. He had deceived his father. He was his mother's favorite. He manipulated everything for his own gain. And here he is running away because his brother was actually trying to kill him. So when he finally became too exhausted to go any further, he stopped and he got a rock and he put that rock down closer to where his body was and he laid his head on that rock and he went to sleep. And in that, in that sleep, he had a dream. He had a vision from God. And in that vision, you know what he saw? He saw this staircase or this gate or this ladder that connected heaven to earth. And what he saw on that ladder were angels ascending and descending on that ladder. And the text actually says that God came down to Jacob. And you know what God said to Jacob? Everything that God had been saying in the previous 27 chapters of the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will, do, I will fulfill all the promises that I've made to you. I will do everything that I've said. I will glorify myself in the world. And from you, Jacob, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Promises that God had been proclaiming throughout history. And here's Jacob in this dream, seeing and hearing what God was saying to him. And he wakes up from the dream, and the next day, he says, this place is the house of God. It is Bethel. This place is the gateway to heaven. This place is where God met with me and told me his promises. Now, what's amazing is that not only did God repeat these promises to Jacob, but God came to Jacob in his experience when he was lying and he was cheating and he hasn't even said he was sorry, much less repent for everything that he had done. He didn't even do those things. He was on the run. He was living a life of rebellion against God. And you know what Jesus says in Nathaniel? You see, we never quite understood whatever happened at the end of Genesis 28 with all this stuff with Jacob. You know what Jesus says to Nathaniel? Nathaniel, I can show you the stairway to God. Nathaniel, I saw you thinking about that story, looking forward to the promises of God being fulfilled. You were looking at that story wanting God to visit you and for you to know the promises of God. And Jesus says, Nathaniel, I can do that. Jesus doesn't say, you know what? I can show you the gate of how you can get to God. He doesn't even say, here's how you can get through the gate. He doesn't say, here's how you climb the ladder in order to get up to God. He says, I am the stairway. I am the gate. I am the one. That's why verse 51 ends by saying, you will see angels ascending and descending on me, the Son of Man. That story in Genesis has its fulfillment right there. In Genesis, it was all about Christ. 
and Nathaniel is getting the reality of that story in Genesis 28. Jesus is our stairway. He is our present Lord who dwells with us. Jesus is how God comes to us in grace. When we cheat and when we lie and when we serve ourselves and we try to use others to make ourselves better. Jesus is how God comes to us on the run. And he comes to us way before we ever think about going to him. And he works into us this desire that we might give all that we are to him. Jesus is saying, it's my coming, Nathaniel. It's my coming, Christ Prez. It's my living. It's my dying. It is my enduring temptation. I am the reality for you, Nathaniel. I am the reality for you. Come, and you will see. And friends, that is what brings us to the table, where we get to come and see and taste that God is good. If you would, uh, move the stuff around you so that as you come forward and people go back to their seats, um, they're not tripping, uh, trying to get in and out of the rows. Um, we're going to do things a little bit differently today, but we've done it this way before. So what we're going to do is, um, in just a few moments, the, those that are leading us with playing music, they're going to come up, come up and partake of the bread and the cup first. And then they're going to go up and they're going to play and we're actually going to sing as we take communion today, as we come forward. So as you come forward, please take the bread and the cup and eat and drink as you are coming up here. Does that make sense? Do not hold. Take as you come forward, all right? Um, I'll restate that in just a minute. As we come to Jesus this morning, we come to him. This table is where we get to taste and see that God is good. So if you're here this morning and you realize that Jesus is the gate and the stairway and he has done everything to get you to the Father and you realize he knows you, really, really knows you, and only he can make you into what you ought to be, this table is for you. Come and eat and be refreshed at who Jesus is for you. And if you're here today and you haven't yet given yourself to Jesus, if you haven't professed faith and become part of his church, not just this church, any church, if you've never made a profession of faith, never said that Jesus is my everything, please don't partake of the bread and the cup. But please take Jesus. He is fully and freely offered to you. Fully, freely. There's no sin that you have done that he cannot forgive and hasn't atoned for. None. So take him. Take him today. Declare that he is yours and that you belong to him. I'm going to ask the elders if they'll come forward, those that are helping this morning.
On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. After he had given thanks, he also took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It is shed for the forgiveness of sins. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim my death until I return. So, beloved, we eat this with thankfulness and expectation that Christ is coming back. And we'll get to enjoy this meal together with him, with all of his saints throughout history. Can't wait to talk to Jacob and David and others. If you are not partaking this morning, you're welcome to stay in your seat. You're also welcome to come forward and just pass by the elements. Whatever will help you focus on Jesus, please do that. If you have any allergies, please feel free to take this allergen-free bread. It's at every station. Or if you don't want to break off of the common loaf, it's fine. Let's pray. Father, we are here as your children. We are here to know more deeply that you alone can make us what we ought to be. And you alone satisfy the deepest needs of our heart. So feed us, Lord, with your grace. Feed us with Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.